Welcome to Kindly Gifted. I'm your host, Kate Tarantiva, and I can't wait to unwrap the world of influence with you. Every day, your gifted episodes, see what I did there, to help you become fluent in the business of creativity and learn the best kept industry secrets to creating an online presence worth remembering. It's really like having a momager on speed dial. So let's dive into it. Alia, welcome to Kindly Gifted. I'm excited to have you here to chat about product things and introduce you to the Kindly Gifted community because you're such a gem. For reference to anyone listening, Ali and I are friends. She's incredible. She runs a product development business and is truly like one of the most brilliant people when it comes to product marketing and development. When I say I invite guests that I'm intimidated by, like this is one of those guests. What an introduction. Well, super happy to be part of Kindly Gifted. I've listened to you for I think longer than um, you and I have connected personally. So it's exciting and nice and full circle and weird. Oh, I didn't know that. That's very interesting. Yeah, I like to keep my stocking uh, under wraps. Um, But yeah, thanks for the nice intro. A little bit about me. My name is Ali O'Neill. I'm the founder of The Product Place. We're a product development agency based here in Dallas, Texas. So what we specialize in is product-based business creation. So really getting people from idea all the way to shipping out their first order and all of the juicy drama that happens in between, including manufacturing, prototyping, sourcing, um, any type of iterations, web development, branding, really being a resource for people who maybe have other passions and other interests, but also really want to get a meaningful product brand out into the market. We kind of step in and and are that end-to-end resource. For my career, I will say I started off in development really early and then basically found that there wasn't a lot of people that were like doing product development as a service. And so that's kind of how TPP came to be. Yeah, that's a really good segue. We've talked about this before, but you've been in the industry for a really long time. Um, and you've seen everything. I think when it comes to products, I think most people associate now, especially that, um, it's easy to create a product brand because you can just private label something or be the face of something, but you promote a different approach to product. You work with people that want to actually build something from scratch, right? I always say there's five different types of product-based businesses. There's private labeling makers, drop shipping, vertical product development, which is what we do at the product place, and then licensing. So I think what we see a lot of in the market is people trying to reverse engineer vertical product-based businesses, which are businesses where the intellectual property is owned by the brand and it's scaling and it's evolving based off of owning that IP. And what we see a lot in the industry is like, or I say industry, like Instagram, TikTok, right? The brand builders of the world. A lot of that is actually reverse engineering what a vertical brand is using tools like drop shipping or using tools like private labeling or white labeling, right? So um, the average founder, right, will, will see like, hey, I really want to do skincare. I'm seeing a lot of skincare. I'm going to get into that. And they'll do it through a route of private labeling or white labeling a a skincare brand. What we do at the product place is try to build as much intellectual property from the ground up 
so that eventually that brand, and we're talking five years down the line, can com be completely vertical and maybe have their own manufacturing facility and really keep things kind of in-house. And one of the ways that you do that is from the early, early days, doing it as vertically as you can. That's really interesting. I definitely, before you and I met, did not know the full scope of like product development. I still don't know a lot, obviously, but most situations that I was in, either people talk about drop shipping, which is a very popular thing, yeah. especially online, and present it more as like a get rich quick scheme as opposed to something super sustainable, or um, a lot of what I did when I was working in marketing for a product-based uh, business, a bridal label, there was like custom designs involved, but also a lot of private labeling and white labeling and licensing involved. Your process is like totally different. What would you say are some of the things that are misconceptions about product development that you see online or that you wish people understood? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is this drop shipping world. And I'm going to tread lightly because like there is a lot of great revenue and great margin and great foundations that can be built off like a drop shipping business model. But ultimately if we call a spade a spade, like drop shipping is flipping, right? It, it should, it should be talked about and used with the same energy that you would flip real estate. You're going to buy something at a certain rate. Mm. You're going to dress it up. You're gonna put some white paint on it, clean the landscaping, give it some curb appeal, maybe change the front door, change the trims, and then you're gonna flip it at a different rate. That in and of itself requires its own set of to-dos, but I do believe mm -hmm. that that's not necessarily building a business, right? That's, or building a business, but it's not necessarily building a brand that has intellectual property. One of the misconceptions with dropshipping mm -hmm. is that your product, the demand for your product is in your hands. Like you don't control any of that because anybody can get on into the industry six weeks behind you and also have the exact same product. And maybe they paint their front door bright pink, mm -hmm. even though yours is navy, right? But ultimately it's the same house, it's the same coat of paint and your market value is kind of set off the fact of like what the foundation of that house is, right? The foundation of that skincare brand that you're building is. And so one of the biggest misconceptions is I think people seeing drop shipping as the same thing as building a house brick by brick. Both of those mm. are totally fine. I would buy a house that already existed. I think a lot of millennials, we all wish we could buy a house, right? So. There's nothing wrong with buying a house that exists, but it's not the same, right? There's not, it's not the same amount of effort. It's not the same amount of gross margin all the way through the process as really understanding the costs for every single one of those bricks, every single one of those nails that you're putting into the house. And that's where drop shipping and what we call like vertical product development or VPD are really separate in the marketplace. And I think drop shipping is correct mm -hmm. for some people. And I think VPD is correct for some people and the, the conflation that those are the two exact same things, I think is where it starts to get sticky and where we start to see some of that like icky marketing where it's like, 
flip this product and make a hundred thousand dollars in a weekend. It's like, yeah, sure you can, but like, what is it that we're doing here? So for me, obviously having a product development agency, I have feelings about, you know, how much (laughs) we should be just like flipping out there in the marketplace and how much, um, just kind of like waste that creates versus creating, you know, maybe a more meaningful product and, and having less volume in the market as well. Oh, that's such a, okay. This is getting into territory that you and I have talked about before. It's very interesting because I don't hear a lot of people behind the scenes who create products talk about the actual ultimately possible over manufacturing or over creation of products. And you just mentioned something. I I would love for you to kind of elaborate on your point of view there as somebody who develops products from the ground up, you know? Yeah. It's like, um, talking to both sides of my mouth here. So I guess like the biggest thing to understand is when we're talking about that drop shipping, we're talking about that flipping, it's real enticing. It's real easy. The barrier to entry in the industry is really low. So let's put numbers behind it. If you're going to drop ship or private label, even an existing skincare serum, let's use like a face serum as an example. If you're not going through development, and the house exists and you have fixed costs of knowing this is how much it's going to cost to paint, to buy the house that exists and to paint it, you're probably going to be more likely because there's less risk to do it at deeper quantities. You're probably more Mm -hmm. likely to say, you know what? I kind of know exactly what my costs are going to be. I'm going to get 10,000 units, even though this is my first time doing it. And I have no idea how to move 10,000 units, but the costs are all fixed the risk feels lower and it's instantly available. And so getting into that world, the quantities start to go up because with the quantities go up, it's like greater, greater quantities, greater reward. When you're doing like a Mm -hmm. vertical product development and everything is a risk, every single component is a risk. The packaging is a risk. You're going through the development on the actual product is a risk you're investing there. All of a sudden, when it comes time to write your purchase orders, you look at the numbers a little bit differently. You look at the energy of what you built differently and you say, you know what, maybe I do start with 500 because this was a lot. And that's how you get the difference of, you know. So you're looking at it from more of a sustainability perspective where you're like looking into the future as opposed to how do I move 10,000 units or 20,000 units like now? Yeah. And I, I think, I think getting into those like bigger quantities is like where a lot of the waste comes in. And that's where it just kind of like becomes a giant system that starts to eat itself. All right. So now you're, let's say 5,000 units, right. In the drop shipping, private labeling, fast development world, say you commit to 5,000 units. Now, all of a sudden you're part of the game where you've got to start running marketing to run those 5,000 units. And then that's where we're starting to see like all of the ads of the same product, right? Like it's like basically the same thing that's like happening. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas like on the other side, you're like, well, I only have 500. So I'm going to make a more, I'm going to make more meaningful decisions. I'm not going to spend a bunch of advertising dollars to move 500. Instead, I'm going to go door to door and I'm going to go find retailers that I can make relationships with and say, Hey, would you guys be interested in taking 25 units? And that's a much more long-term play, but I do think it's sustainable. And I think from an industry-wide, the conversation that a lot of people aren't having right now is just how those two different mindsets start to trickle up and touch the rest of 
the marketplace, right? How it, how it shows up differently with ad spend, how it shows up differently with the content that you put out on social media about your brand. You've only got 500 units to move. You don't really want to do a bunch of UGC, right? You maybe want to have one or two really nice brand ambassador relationships, but you don't want your product on every 10th influencer on TikTok because you don't have the volume to sustain that. Mm -hmm. So instead you have to make more intentional decisions. So it's very clear how fast you can get to a really juicy return on investment with those two different worlds, right? One of them's obviously way flashier and sexier in the immediate, but I think people are like sleeping on like the slow turtle wins the race mentality of doing something well, maybe you don't have as many units, so the math isn't as sexy, but what would that lower risk actually mean for the intention of the brand that you're building, the intention of the product that you're building, the intention behind the teams that you're engaging with to build it? Do you make different decisions when you know that you're not necessarily going to be having a huge financial return literally next weekend after you go live? So for me, that's what I'm like, right, most, right, is watching that, right? Like watching what is what is the difference between a founder who wants to take something that already exists and say they have an X amount of budget and they're going to buy 5,000 units against a founder that says, I don't really think anybody's doing this. I want to do it really well. I'm in the really well game. That's a really good point. Correct me if I'm wrong. It seems like there's also a difference in personality types and goals between people that do either of these options. Absolutely. Do you have a specific way or recommendations for if somebody wants to start a product-based business, how do they figure out which of these different routes mm -hmm. is the right option for them? Yeah. So I actually have like three variables that you track that you should like psychologically touch base with yourself on. So time team and cash. How much time are you really willing to invest in your relationship with this new business brand that you're building? There are no wrong answers for any of the things that I'm sure we'll talk about, but for time, it's like, you know, if you want to, if you want to be having something on the market in two weeks, drop ship it, baby. Like do you boo? Like if that's how much time you're willing to invest, that tells you a lot about the lifestyle that you might already have and what makes sense for you. And vertical product development does not make sense for a lot of, especially founders who are getting into their second, third, fourth entrepreneurial endeavor. So time's the first question you got to ask yourself. Second question is you got to ask yourself as team, do I value building a vertical team? Do I value having other people who are going to be taken care of by this brand that I'm building? whether that's today or it's in six years, what's my relationship with the amount of other humans I want to involve in this product brand? If your answer on that is like, I just want it to just be me. I know exactly what I want. I want it to just be me. I know I can flip units. I know I have half a million followers on TikTok and I know that I can, I can get a conversion and I can get sales and the team is not of value to you, then vertical product development probably doesn't make sense for you either because that level mm -hmm. of long-term growth requires you to reinvest into the business. It's going to make sense for you to have your own marketing team in-house. It's going to make sense for you to have some level of product development or logistics or fulfillment support. And then the last one is cash. And I think 
right now, what we're seeing is that a lot of people are only considering the cash. So cash comes into play because it's sometimes a vertical product development, that longer game is just simply not feasible. If you want to build, for example, mm -hmm. if you want to get into building like, I don't know, like a radio, right? Or like we can use like a product brand too. Like if you want to get into building a full bikini line and you have a real vision of it needs to be, these are the bodies it has to be for me to be into it from a vertical standpoint, that might be a $200,000 plan because there's some things you just can't do cheaper. If you're trying to build something for scratch, mm -hmm. you can't do it in any other way. It has to come from something. Matter is made from the world, right? But if your cash is a different budget, your only option might be to private label something or to white label something or to drop ship something that already exists. So time mm -hmm. and cash are like the variables that I would kind of put down on a piece of scratch paper and say, where do I align on these? You know, one end of it is, is private label kind of pulling from an existing world of product. The other end is I'm going to do it from scratch. And when you kind of see like where your values line up with those, I think that gives you a really clear idea of what's right for you. Right. Yeah. It's interesting also because I was watching, um, what is his name? Ryan. He owns a skincare brand called do and documented a lot of him building this thing from, and I don't know if it's like, if it seems like it's made from scratch like vertical development, but I don't know hundred percent. He maxed out all of his credit cards to build this brand. That's now very much sustainable and is funding the lifestyle that he has and all these great things. I think that sometimes there's also that measure of how passionate are you about something in addition yeah. to how much money do you have like how much time do you need because sometimes you have those situations where a founder is like i i'll take the hit now and go right. into debt but i want to have the brand and i don't want to sacrifice on the quality or the time or whatever it is to make it it's just a very interesting approach how everybody's so different and there's not like one single way to do it yeah, everybody true. had a specific reasoning and values for why they did it yeah no i think there's definitely not a right way to do it i will say that there, like that time and i mean it obviously took me you know five years to come up with that i'm like to really figure out like what are the variables that i, I actually think make a difference and then like, I think like the time and the team one does bubble up to passion, right? And like, mm -hmm. who am I how passionate somebody is about something? Only they can know that. But I do think how much time you're willing to carve out of your existing lifestyle and how much team you're willing to envision for something, whether now or in the future, is kind of a way to like metrify, you know, how devoted you are, how much passion you have for, for what you're doing and truly like how much of your current lifestyle or lifestyle or funds, or are you willing to jack up? <laughs> like, cause it's not going to be right. smooth sailing no matter what way you do it. Private labeling, drop shipping, running those yeah. businesses is not easy at all. It's just a different set of skills. It's a different set of actions. You mentioned earlier that 
second or third time product founders may think of these things differently. What is the different mindset between somebody who has founded product-based businesses before versus somebody who's doing it for the first time? What are things that each considers differently? Let's say like a a product-based business, typically you have about 10 to 15 relationships behind running that brand. So whether that's your packaging manufacturer, whether that's, you know, the person who helps you import into the United States, if you're developing abroad, the actual factories, you might have components going on. I think one of the biggest lessons I see with people who are coming around to do this a second time or a third time is that they've experienced the pitfalls and they're willing to effectively outsource to jump the line a little bit in the process. Now that might be with working Mm -hmm. with like, you know, like a development house, um, kind of like what we do, but that also might mean just working with somebody to project manage themselves. So the biggest difference I see is having a better understanding of the value in getting to market faster, right? So if we take an example of like a tech startup founder, if, if we're talking about like a tech startup founder, they're in that all day. They've just built their startup. They got to their first 50 employees. Things are rolling. They're meeting investor KPIs, but they really want to do skincare. Their second round in entrepreneurship, they've already learned, like, I am not about to go and build that entire thing from scratch the way I just struggled through and did that. I am good at that. I'm not going to be also good at this. And so it's about a value. Like, where do you see the value add in getting to market with the concept Do you want to, you know, slow, medium, fast? Um, That's a big thing that I've seen as as well. Yeah, that's, it's like how parents say that, especially ones that have multiple children, they need to learn from their first child and certain things are changed in terms of parenting when it comes to the second or third children. So it seems like there's the same parallel happening here, but in the business world where you're founding multiple companies. In terms of your role in, let's say somebody is founding a product-based business from scratch, there's Mm -hmm. the option of them doing it entirely themselves, right? Which obviously can take longer if you don't outsource certain parts. Then there's the option of going with somebody like you. What are the differences and maybe pros and cons to consider of going it yourself versus going and outsourcing a lot of these parts to somebody more experienced? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest difference is speed to market, right? So you have to weigh like how urgent, how much urgency do you have? If you have the urgency and you have the cash flow to be able to do it in six months, outsource your development to somebody who can get it done in six months. That's not the situation Mm. for everybody and it shouldn't be the situation for everybody. So I think the biggest differences are mostly like project management. And I think that sounds like, you know, well, I can get into ClickUp and I can like project manage myself, but project management really with foresight, what are the risks we can expect based off of similar types of products that have been built before in this area? What are the guardrails that we need to stay inside of? So it's about like foreseeing what the risks are and then pivoting before we get there. One of the things I always share about like product Mm -hmm. development that's different than like service-based businesses Like in service-based businesses, you can stay up until four o'clock in the morning to do some work that you need to do. In a product-based business, when you run into a problem and you've got to solve it, a lot of times a check needs to be written. 
a lot of times there's additional development that needs to happen. There's a custom mold that needs to get made. There's a subject matter expert that needs to come in to do an industrial review of the product to make sure that we can actually sell in the marketplace. And so when you're building a new brand from scratch, really the benefit of, of working with somebody who has done it before is not necessarily in the fact that you couldn't figure it out. It's more so in what are all the things that they may already know are going to happen and let's avoid those as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so even like at the product place, like mm. my, I have founders that are on their like third brand and I'll tell them, I'll be like, all right, next time you're on your own. Like next time, you know, you're, I'll get, I'll give you like two calls a year, but you got this because you've seen it all, you've, you've built it all, you've followed along with me as I've been building your brands and you don't need me, buy free. Like you have learned from me what you can learn. So I really do stand by that, mm -hmm. that really it's about understanding the product that you're building, understanding how your supply chain works. But at a certain point, um, the benefit really just comes into like avoiding the drama of what, of what can happen. Because a lot of those mistakes are super costly. Yeah, I definitely understand your perspective and also in some industries not all but in some you have more innovation happening than in others especially when it comes to something like beauty or yeah. you know i don't even know like let's say something that's related to like a tech thing if it's like a physical product that's an extension of a tech company or whatever there's some sort of speed of innovation happening and i'm curious about your perspective we've talked about this briefly before but in terms of sometimes you're competing against innovation. You're not even, you know, it's not really sometimes worth the weight of launching a product that is already clearly being released at a mass scale. And you have something that you could add now instead of maybe waiting, would you say sometimes yeah. it might be good to do it? Yeah. No, that comes down to that immediately, right? Like that down to like, yo, I'm on the market. I have a great idea. Like I just do, no one's doing this or they're doing it, but I've got like a different take on it. So it's worth the drop now to speed it up. Right. I also think there's like yeah. some things about relationships. I always say that like my product-based business is relationships. Like I built the product place literally just off of the fact that many of the factories that I work with today are the same factories I worked with when I was 15, when I was interning in the industry. I just like, have the exact same relationships. And a lot of times, even speaking of innovation, like our factories will give us a call and be like, Hey, we just got this new capability. Do you have any use cases? And I'll be like, I don't know. Let me get back to you. And so there's a lot of stuff that happens in product mm -hmm. development on the back end that a typical founder who's never done product before shouldn't have any understanding of. Um, you brought up a good point with like what we call formula based businesses, skincare brands, right? Or anything with the formula beauty formula-based businesses, there's a lot of that because there's a lot of back end phone calls, you know, on a Saturday night between a factory and someone like myself who are saying, Hey, we just got, we just got retinol at 22%. And I'll be like, good to know. Let me go and do my thing and see who needs it. See where it may make sense for, for a product. Also just good for me to have that information in case anybody comes along that, that wants to build a brand in that way. And maybe that's something that's not even on the market yet. So mm. some of the, it's urgency. And then it's also like this world of, you don't know what you don't know. 
and you're truthfully not supposed to know that. Like there would be no way to find mm-hmm. find that out other than to to do it yourself for a year and, and learn the industry, which I do love. I mean, I love I love a hustler. Yeah, this is a very risk driven thing. You have to have a certain personality for it to just be like, yeah. take the risk. There's a really huge chance it might not work. Right. We don't yeah. know. I think that's there's like- also the chance that it might. There's a very good chance that it might. And I think that like ties back to like the first thing we we're talking about or like what a lot of my emotion is tied up now in being a founder of a business like this is like that level of, or it might work out that bars a lot lower than people place it. Everybody's got that bar at a million dollars. Everybody's got that bar at getting Forbes 30 under 30. Everybody has that bar at being like this odd level of success that product brands have to have. Typically, Mm. that bar needs to be like nine notches lower. If you can start a product-based business and break even your first year and love your customers and your customers love your product and they're engaging with your email list and they're like, when are we going to get this? And I would love to see it in a different color. And they're giving referrals. And every time you drop something, you're at a 50% sell through. That is a very underrated, very sexy place to be with product. And that's like really what I do, right? I have clients that come in, potential clients that come in and say, listen, what, you know, we're going to have to do a million, a million units in the first two years. I'm like, I ain't your girl. Cause that is a whole, that is a lot of compromises we're going to have to make on the quality of the product, on the quality of the positioning, just to hit that metric. So there's all these other metrics and all these other like steps on the ladder that I think are really undervalued, but actually can be so much more fulfilling. That is such a good point. Cause from a marketing perspective, I always think that the, and don't get me wrong, it'd be so nice to get Forbes 30 under 30, less than two years left for me, but it's more so a metric that's sexy to other founders and investors. It's not a sexy thing for consumers. Like we genuinely don't give a fuck if your brand was if you're a founder that's 30 under 30 or your brand was featured in pop sugar or business, they don't care. It's not, it doesn't determine their relationship that they have. And I agree that I think there's an underrated view of success where success can literally be you impacting other people's lives. And they see you as a founder and, or just your product as their new best friend that they've been waiting for. Yeah. yeah. And that, that could be success in and of itself. Don't get me wrong. I mean, cause I don't want to make it seem like I'm like the, the vibes and the feels are enough. No, like we need to break, we need to break even. We need to be making some profit. Like impact is, is an angle, but like, I guess for me, it's more, why does everybody's financial success start at seven figures. That doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. We're all making seven figures now. We're all living incredibly different lifestyles. You're in Atlanta. I'm in Dallas. Cost of living is different. You have listeners who are in New York. I'm sure you have listeners abroad. Like we're all working with different types of lifestyles, different values of where we like to invest our time, invest our own personal money. But when it comes to launching and being a founder of a product-based business, all of a sudden we're all supposed to have the same exact goal to make a million dollars and sell the brand for 
you know, 10 plus million within three years. How is that possible? So that for me is where where it sits. It It does not mean that you can't be super profitable and that you can't be super flashy and that your product brand can't buy you, you know, a G wagon cash off the lot. It can, but even that doesn't necessarily mean you're doing a million units in sales or $10 million in in net revenue. So I think it's about being honest Mm -hmm. with the market when you're, when you're thinking about launching something and really figuring out like what your metric is and chase that. Yeah. It's a, a question I've asked brand founders and personal brands before, which was, what are you driven by influence money or power? And it's crazy how that question informs a lot of the way people found businesses. Because sometimes, yeah, like somebody's metric of success is them buying a G-Wagon. And that's them having a successful business. But like there's, like you said, there's so many other things before the seven figures and the Forbes 30 and 30 and rolling around in G-Wagon that already denote success before that. However, if your metric of success is just money or just influence or just power, maybe a hybrid of some of those, then it's funny when the way that somebody ends up saying their goals for their businesses, it really does reflect the answer that they have. And it's like mm-hmm. no shade, no tea, but it's yeah. very indicative um, but I of like how they, I mean, how they, different. you know, I mean, that's like, yeah, famous sentence ever. Like we're all different. <laughs> like, I guess when it comes down to it, you really just got to really be true to what this brand, you know, like being about product-based business, like what this brand is fulfilling for you. And another good question that like, I like to ask new clients is, is this like, is this your one or are we about to do like seven more dream world? And a lot of times I'm surprised, but a lot of times people are like, no, this is just the beginning. And I'm like, okay, so great. Let's take all this pressure off. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to revolutionize the world. Let's do 500 units that are super sexy and freaking awesome. And then let's move on and go build the next cool thing. So it's really interesting when you put yeah. that piece in too, because I do have founders who are on the other spectrum who are like, no, I've been waiting to do this since I was 11. I'm like, okay, so we better slow it down and let's get it right. <laughs> it's just like different, everything is different energy and it's, it's you know, there's no wrong answers. Um but the money influence power thing is, I think, a different a different take on that, right? It's like how they show up in the the maintenance and the day to day when they look at their business every morning, or even the businesses that they build and why. It's very interesting. I'm sure for you, it's you play a more emotionally detached role in somebody's business, whereas a founder is significantly more emotionally attached to certain things. That from your perspective, you may think like. Why are we doing that? It literally makes no sense. But this person is so in their head about certain things. And I think it's also because there's so different opinions and all these opinions come off as rules. And you're like, is this the right move? Is this the right move? There's just like so many different pieces of advice. It's hard sometimes to reel it in. There's absolutely no rules. Um, There's absolutely mm -hmm. no rules. And I think one of the things that can be really liberating and one of the most rewarding parts of my job is when I can tell somebody like, 
don't let this be a burden to you. Like this decision we're talking about right now, not a big deal. Let it go. It's fine. It'll be fine either way. There's no wrong decision you can make. And 99% of the time, that's the case. You know, this hang tag or hmm. this hang tag, yes, that's fine. It's not going to impact the end, end world of where we're going. So that's, those are some of the most rewarding moments for me is when I can see like a founder who's like super, super passionate about what we're, what we're building. And they're like losing sleep, like churning over something particular. And I'm like, yo, it's cool. It's cool. Go work on something else. Go be creative over there. Go do something like, let me, I got this. It's fine. I got this. I'll decide for you. It's okay. Um, that's what, and I just can see them like relax. And then typically they come back, you know, like a week later with, you know, really, you know, juicy energy in, in a different area. And we kind of repeat the process all over again, but really when it comes to product, I really don't think there's any wrong answers and there is a ton of information out there. I'd say 70% of it is really, really good. Um, and as you're kind of churning through that and filtering through the thing you have to like kind of keep in mind is it can feel really overwhelming, but unless you've been doing this for 15 years, you're not supposed to know any of the things that you discover, right? Like it would be weird and creepy if you read these 15 articles on Forbes talking about product and the industry. And you were like, I knew all of that. You would have to sit with yourself and be like, wow, why do I know that? I mean, that would be odd. So you really have to like, let yourself be like a baby and kind of be like, I guess that's true. Thought I understood how t-shirts were made, but I guess I was completely wrong. Did not know that that was the process and just let yourself be open to being like, this is complete new stuff and it should be. Yeah, I definitely think as adults, we place a lot of pressure on ourselves to know everything. And kids don't have that same thing. When you were a kid, your parent could be like, stove's hot. But you actually don't know if it's hot or not until you touch it. And all of us have touched it. And that's how we figured out that it was hot. And I don't think adults do that anymore as often where there's a lot of this expectation of, well, now I'm grown and I've experienced a lot and I've lived on this earth for a long time. So I need to know everything about everything. And if I don't, I'm dumb or, you know, I'm not going to be successful, whatever that metric of success looks like. So it's very interesting that you just like, and I think brought up that same kind of thing. Maybe that's why I built the business that I did and like tying it all back together in a nice bow. First conversation where we kind of started about mm. like this volume world, right? Where, you know, the flipping world, lower hanging fruit world. Again, nothing wrong with it. It's just a different business model. Um, against kind of what I do, which is like the lower quantities. Like maybe that's a part of, of what I like to see in the people I work with. Like, I like to see you guys like figure it out over time. Like I like to see it start to click. I like to see the success of the brand, sure. But also like, you get it now? You remember six months ago when you were asking me why we didn't do that? I was like, do you see? And they're like, yes. And I like that slower progression of really understanding what you're doing, right? And it doesn't mean mm. that do it better than anybody else. It just means like, I like that moment where you've really learned something. And I think it's, again, it's just my opinion, but I think that's why I like as a founder with my business and with the work that I do, will probably never truly be able to get the get rich quick 
version of things. Though I think they have merit for certain people, I would never have a business that supports that because for me, I can't find the value in that fast of a return. I'm mm-hmm. maybe I'm just a dork and I really like like to get into things and I just want to understand how we got there. But when things move so fast, can you really appreciate it? Maybe another that personality is, type. Is... I am not that personality type. And I think <laughs> I attract clients who are not that personality type. Yeah, that is a very good point to like sit and think about because it just varies on personality types really some personality or what you were saying of like what do you value what's important to you if you're driven by the money then someone listening to this who's driven by the money is like what is she talking about yeah if i could make 600k of net profit faster i would do it faster but for me it's so much more fun to do it the other way it's so much juicier like it's just Right. You don't know what you're looking for. Um, and I think that kind of drives the answer. I relate very much to you, but I've also had people in my life question decisions I've made or whatever, simply because at the end of the day, we just don't align on the same kind of value thing. So they're looking at something that I'm looking at from an impact perspective or like an influence perspective and they're looking at it from like why the fuck are you investing so much money into doing something or like that's not gonna make money immediately we just see this we look at the same issue from just very different values and that's okay there's nothing wrong with prioritizing money and being money driven but for me it's like i don't think that's the most important thing and it definitely causes me to have butt with some people like but fun easy thing about it too you just said it you were like i look at that and like i'm like not prioritizing the money and it just made me think of like a really easy answer at least from like what i do is when people like want to make money fast i'm like dude this is like product is not the and i don't i don't care what kind of product you're doing drop shipping private leaving white labeling what i do licensing something it's just not the fastest return to make good money. Mm -hmm. So for me, I'm like, if you're going to do it, that's where I have the gap. Cause I'm like, product is a pain in the butt. Like it really, it really is. Iterations are slow, no matter what you're doing. It just doesn't turn as fast as like some other things that are popping in the marketplace right now. Online education, like you can pop a course up and like make your money back. Right. So product is always going to have some level of financial investment. And so when people just prioritize the money as the output, I'm like, go invest in this is why make 10,000 units. Yeah, literally, That's the part that will, that won't make sense <laughs> to me, but I, I, I believe, and maybe I'm manifesting it that in the next 14 months, I'll be on a panel and I'll hear somebody argue the other side about how product is, you know, is a great investment tool and great way to diversify your your portfolio and i can see the sides of it but for the average early stage product founder who's doing it for the first time if it's pure money you're after this is a really 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 
labor intensive path, no matter what way you dice it. So it has to be something else. There's a good example of what you just mentioned from an ordinary person. Cause I feel like some of these like Mark Cuban level of examples, like don't hit with the demographic oftentimes. Right. One of the most impactful things I ever saw of people, somebody talking about this was a young woman and I cannot remember her name, the girl with the swimsuits. And it all started with her basically buying a bunch of Kylie Swim and comparing Kylie Swim to what it should look like on an average woman's body. And mm-hmm. she coined this term of like, oh, the chicken neck area is not being covered enough. Yeah. So then she started her own brand and then started buying other people's product and ultimately comparing her brand to that. Anyways, she made a video a while back where she was like, this is the reality of owning like, I think it was at the time she had made six figures and she was like, this is a six figure business. Now this is the reality of it. She's like, I'm literally cry every day. I'm losing hair. I'm stressing out. I have to deal with people returning things and being unhappy. Despite the fact that in my comment section, it may look like everyone's obsessed. There are people who are not obsessed and that's okay. And she was listing all of these different things that she learned from something that she started because she loves it. It was very eye-opening because I don't know what she was driven by. And it seems like it's definitely more impact than money. But even if her metric of success was finances, she's making a ton of money from her business, but it's also not easy for her emotionally or mentally to be a founder. And um, I thought that was an incredible example of of something that you just talked about. Yeah, Yeah, you have to, product is a very, um, it requires a lot of love and attention and time and team and cash, right? Like ultimately any way that you kind of cut it up, doing product and doing product well requires you to care about product. And it's, you know, whether it's you need to care about it a little bit so that you can get through those nights of of having somebody who wants their money back and wants a return, right? Um, or to get right. through those nights where, you know, maybe things aren't going well with timelines with your factory. And that is going to come up with drop shipping or private labeling or anything. So for product, if you're, if you're considering it, I would always say, remember the piece that felt the most exciting for you. And I would imagine with that story that you shared when she actually gets to read the comments about, oh my God, I couldn't, I could never find a swimsuit that sat right. I'm sure that's what checks back in with her and says, this is why I'm doing it. And maybe it's a little cheesy, but you have Mm -hmm. to have a, this is why, because if not, there are a lot of other pathways and a lot of other things you can go do with $10,000 that do not require you to engage with other humans. Oh my God, this is amazing. Because my last question for you is going to be, what is the one thing you would tell a product founder? And you just used apparently your sixth sense to read my mind and just answered that question immediately. That one thing that made you like creepily excited about it on day one, because that'll, that'll pull you through. Well, I am so grateful for you coming on and sharing your expertise. There is so much value in here. When I tell you like Ali is literally like, the product magician. I'm not even kidding. So hopefully this episode was valuable to anybody who wanted to 
create a product or really any type of brand because there's definitely a lot of things you can pull into other industries as well. But I appreciate you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge and perspectives. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. I hope this was helpful as well. It was a joy. And everybody, yeah, just don't take it so seriously. Have fun. Relax. It's just lipstick. Thanks for tuning in to Kindly Gifted. To support the podcast, please leave a review, share with your friends, and don't forget to subscribe. Make sure you follow me on TikTok at Kate Mob for more creative secrets from the internet's momager. See you on the next episode of Kindly Gifted.